Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, Radical Optimists. It's your host, Sofia Tapia. Welcome to another episode of the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. Today, we have an incredible panel from AI for Good a global summit hosted by XPRIZE and ITU about machine translation and cognitive code switching. The conversation is led by SMRA, an associate professor at UC Irvine and co-founder of AI for Africa, and features Vukase Maribate, Jose Casa, and Jackie Berry. Today's guests will discuss the concept of Cosmo Ubuntu, a sustainable, inclusive, and global alternative framework for understanding personhood of AI praxis. They'll also introduce us to the Masekane Project, a global effort which brings together diverse African NLP researchers with the goal to mobilize AI and machine learning towards solving problems such as the scarcity of public African language datasets, the lack of discoverable African language resources, and the various impediments to African language access. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Thank you and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. My name's Essa Murray. We are a group of people that are spread across Africa and the diaspora. And I'm just going to share with you a little bit of backstory that brings us here today to this panel on Cosmo Ubuntu, machine translation and cognitive code switching. So we're a team that come from all across the world. We are a group of people that come from very many different fields and we're also intergenerational. The youngest amongst us is uh, Mustafa Diawal-Hak. He is a, a very, very forward-thinking engineer in Ghana. He's currently the recipient of the Zaid Prize for Innovation in the field of food and technology. And we also have medical doctors and we have filmmakers and visual artists. We are storytellers, we are choreographers, we are data scientists, of course. And we care deeply about Africa and the diaspora and facilitating the trajectory of these technologies being used to raise the life chances of the least among us. 
And so this really coalesces with AI for Good's mission concerning the SDGs and those 17 missions that we are addressing globally. Today, we have three panelists and we are inspired by the work of Gugi Watiango, who happens to be a colleague of mine here at UC Irvine. Um, we're focusing on machine translation and the possibility of this engagement of African peoples all over the world being able to remember their mother tongue, starting, of course, with the possibility of collapsing those artificial borders between countries that were colonized and then became adoptees of European languages. Gugi Wationgo, his mission has been centrally focused on creating from his own mother tongue of Kikungu. And in speaking with him via text message the other day, he said, anything that helps us is most welcome. And so in the spirit of Gugu Wationgo's mission, we continue this through the, the digital world. We are multi-generational, we are geo-dispersed, but we've been working on this digital, dispersed, flattened terrain. So we are not a listserv, we are very actively engaged and we're growing. And we do hope that today you're stimulated and to the point where you'd like to lean in and engage with the forward motion that we are launching. Without further ado, handing over to our first panelist, Dr. Jose Cosa. He's from Mozambique and he's also an associate professor in the College of Education at Pennsylvania State University. Over to you, Jose. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Emma, for the wonderful introduction. We find ourselves at a cross, you know, crossroads of sorts. And uh, many times, you know, part of the, the reason we wanted to have this conversation is that many times Africa and black people, you know, to, uh, so to speak, in general, you know, throughout the world have actually been left out of such conversations. And we thought that bringing this wide populational group of people, this great uh, population has contributed to the development of the world onto the table would be critical. Uh, but not just bringing bodies on, but also bringing our cosmology, bringing our epistemologies, our way of thinking, our way of uh, doing things. The one thing that I want to point out is that many times when we talk about AI, we talk about technology, uh, we often separate the human from the technology. And we assume that what we, whatever is produced in the technological world is simply going to be a tool to assist human beings for efficiency and so on and so on. What we don't, uh, we, we neglect or sometimes don't really want to address is the fact that whoever created this is a human being. So the human element still plays a big part in the creation of that. And if you think about creationism, for those of you who believe in creationism, you know, this idea that God breathed life into the human and, the, and, and created the human in its own likeness, right? Uh, so when we uh, talk about AI, it's really human intelligence that powers machines with its intelligence. And in, it's almost like breathing life into these machines. 
and and these machines then become an image really intellectual images of the human and so they whatever they will do they will do things the way we have informed them to do and so in a sense we are gods in that space you know machines don't create themselves we create them and we breathe our lives into them you know in the, in the form of intellectualism so i i want to address this specifically because our perception of human then becomes incredibly important in this space how we perceive the human and in this space normally people will tack you know that will be addressing the human in a very humanistic modernistic sense cogito ergo sum the cartesian you know idea you know of i think therefore i am this realization that humans realize their existence through the mind through this intellect and so in that space what your perception of being then begins to shape the space in the machine the technological space and so the machine's intelligence is also going to be informed by that particular dualism of you know the cartesian dualism of sorts and when you understand yourself in terms of the mind then there is this and the intellect then the question becomes whose intelligence is really being fed into the machine and with the human intelligence the perception of human being i think therefore i am then you are informing that machine with that particular perception and and then what it does is and we've seen some of these examples is that that machine carries also your bias it carries your perception of the world and it carries your perception of people outside of your own community and so we have had issues of you know machines not recognizing you know black people or, or women and things of that sort and so that's because this is the perception of human we have and the machines then gain that particular perception we want to present a different uh, understanding of human here which is really a way of looking back and drawing from our past while informing the present and moving forward now in african time there is really uh, no past present and future in the same way of the linear way that the modernity kind of world and western world looks at it so the sankofa bird is a really good representation of that because sun talks about returning and call to go and to look sick so so sankofa is really to go back to find the information that we have actually either misplaced lost or has been denied us and go back to this ancestral wisdom and bring it with us and since we are in a very technological kind of a cross lines ai being a very one of the new you know uh, kids on the block we need to address this we need to bring this sort of wisdom on to to the stage and so since we address the cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am being the uh, dominant perception of the human that really informs a lot of our technology and so on and has caused a lot of issues precisely because it doesn't really include those other cosmologies and and epistemologies outside of modernity so then we want to bring on uh, shine some light on ubuntu so ubuntu uh, means literally the motto is uh, you know ubuntu ubuntu gabantu a person is a person through unto because and and some say with other persons 
And, uh, and that is a perception almost like whenever you're looking at human be fellow human beings, you're looking at just at this person, this individual that you call self. And, and so this is different from, I think, therefore, I am the realization of existence through the mind. So when, when you think of, in the, of communities, you think of human uh, in that particular sense, then you, you're going to be able to inform machines and technology in that same way. And in this perception is that all humans really are about to, because personhood is not, you know, in this sense, it's, it's not an imposed universalism. So what happened is Vasco da Gama is uh, the Portuguese, you know, explore, uh, explorer just going, trying to find his way to India and comes to Southern Africa. And the story goes that part of the explorer's trajectory was to go to India, but they ended up in the Southern African, so-called Southern African area. They encounter people there and they ask them, so who are you? And the answer is Bantu. And Bantu, the answer really was people. We are people like you are people. And so the European with the Cartesian dualism, with the Kujitu Ergo Sum sort of realization and, and the three you know, tenets of modernity that it carried, which is this personal individuation, the cultural rationalization, and, and the structural differentiation, the hierarchies that are embedded in that, they said, oh, so you are the Bantu people. And when you look at history books and everything that has been written since then, is the people of that region alone were considered Bantu. But what that particular perception was of human was, we are human as you are human. So there's no sense of, you know, you know, the imposed universalism in that context. There's no sense of exclusionary, you know, there's no better humans than, and then the other humans. We are all human in the same way. So if you think of that in terms of informing machines uh, about that in with through that sort of understanding of human, then you would have less of an issue with differentiation that these machines would be informed with the ability of viewing humans in the same way everywhere because we are human. And, and so you would have less of racist, you know, issues and, and, and gender differentiation and, and ethnic sorts of, of, uh, of issues. So we need to begin to embed this in the conversations very early because what has happened really is historically is that, you know, through modernity and modernization cycle, what I call a modernization cycle is that you have invention. You know, you come through the idea, you inventing. And you're inventing in the sense that the individual is inventing this. And it's in the individual is inventing this because the individual has their own personal individual kinds of interests. And, and so because they're also living in a cultural differentiation of sorts, they also see elitism there as an important component that we have to be different. Definitely, we can rationalize the reason machines are going to, or our inventions are not going to serve all people. They're going to serve some people better than others. Of course, because we are different people, right? And so it, it's okay to do that. This, is, this was the rationale of col colonialism too, the cultural differentiation, that, the rationalization of culture. And, and so then creating the structures around it and saying, yes, we can differentiate structures because we need to sustain, you know, all, all structures have to work together so they complement so that they can, you know, we can have this. And so all of that stuff 
it, it really springs from that very foundation of Kojitur Musun. And it has been, uh, you know, fed into this modernization cycle of we invent from that perception without thinking about the human from the Ubuntu perception of sorts. And so we're thinking only in the way of the humanist, you know, Western humanism sort of thing, which is the individual and so on. And, and so we invent and whatever we invent is okay. It can do harm to other people because there are, those are other, they, they, it is us versus they, you know, Cartesian dualism, you know, so we can damage, you know, the earth, the planet and, and others because those things are not really a part of who we are. You know, we are separate from that. And, and so going to Africa and dumping, you know, all sorts of toxics was okay. You know, uh, colonizing peoples was okay. So we can create machines to help us do that, you know, and, and without regarding necessarily what's, you know, totally disregarding what's happening on the continent and so on. And we continue to see this cycle. And, and then we move on to remediation, which is this part of, oh, now the ethics uh, conversation. Now we can begin, we have to begin to develop some sort of ethics uh, so that they can guide us, you know, through this. And, and this ethical argument is still built within that very same modernistic standpoint, you know, it's not outside of it. So the ethics is still a simple remediation of all those things and they're very much incommensurate uh, with Ubuntu. Uh, they don't match. Ones who didn't participate in this whole conversation, they can they can participate in the ethics conversation because that's a whole different framework. And then we move on to complacency because we've done our part and now we feel good about ourselves and let's move on to the next thing. And so the savior mentality and so on, those are things that really exist that continue to propagate. So the thing we really wanting to draw here is that Africa has to participate, global Africa. And we're talking about, you know, black people everywhere, Africans everywhere, diaspora and on the continent, that we have to participate in the process of conceptualizing, inventing, innovating, and operating. What we have been doing so far, and I've worked with NSF projects here in the United States, and I, one of the things that I really felt, uh, you know, uh, was really painful to see many times was how much the, you know, the, the young black students in CS were really participating more on the part of the usage of the technology to advance other things, not on the crafting of the actual technology, the, the you know, the birthing of, of these things and the conceptualizing part. Why? Because of how the colonization process operates. And so it all constantly pushes certain people, the other, to either the so-called margins or what I call the exterior to modernity. And so we need to get on this. We're not to be included. I'm not arguing for inclusion here because I, I don't really don't want to be included in the project of modernity, but I'm talking about breaking down these borders that exist and, and beginning to have, you know, what I call the bordering and deperiphrasing and so on, beginning to have conversations across the board in a very equitable way. So we need to bring this because this cosmology really embraces something beyond human beings, but also the non-human world and, and all the cosmos and so on. And that's why uh, and the reason this is called Cosmo Ubuntu is because when the Africans said Bantu, they were not saying this is an African thing, that this is a definition of human from, for, for Africans only. This is for the world. So there's no othering. We all are human. We all are Bantu. So it is a Cosmo 
Ubuntu. We were developers at a very early stage until we got into school and school pretty much began to teach us other things, completely disregarded the experience and the intellectual engagement that little kids have in Africa. And we have a lot of creative folk. And so why is it that we are not more and more in this part, you know, of the conversation? So uh, what we really need to do, humans must do, is to assure that AI conceptualization and advances are found on this Ubuntu-infused justice. And, uh, and the Cosmo Ubuntu theorizing and praxis, really, because there's a lot of theoretical grounding of, of the stuff that we do in Africa, but it's never considered theoretical. You know, we, we don't, we're not considered theoreticians, you know, uh, because we have to be, you know, we have to borrow some sort of critical theories from elsewhere to interpret our own reality. But I want us to begin to think about this more seriously and also to avoid the perils of past innovations, which have hurt us um, so much and Black people profusely. Thank you very much for the time. Great. Thank you, Jose. Each time we meet and each time we talk about these concepts, it, it affirms what it is that we're doing and the way in which our group works in a very circular and leaning in and leaning on way as opposed to a hierarchical structure. But I also want to talk a little bit about innovation. So you talk about Often we're, look, we're looked upon as consumers, as those that use what the West has created. But I want to trouble that a little bit. So as we know, in the West now we have mobile banking. And many of you may not know, the mobile banking really got its, its grip and its, and its sophistication in Africa and India. And this was the place where they disrupted the uses of the technology and started to do things that were novel and innovative. I think about other ways in which we may have used Western instruments. Thinking about jazz music, we took a saxophone and we created something completely else. So this perception that we're behind in terms of technology, would you like to speak to that just briefly? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, Cosmo Ubuntu really does, it's, it's, it's this, if you, if you perceive Cosmo Ubuntu in this, you know, in the sense of uh, the human uh, being Bantu, we are Bantu. So there's no, you know, without hierarchies, without borders and so on. Uh, the, the way we look at the world is exactly that, that we can actually interact with the world without losing the sense of humanity. We can interact with fellows e everywhere without necessarily losing the core of our humanity. So uh, learning an instrument from elsewhere, a language, if you look at you know, African communities, we speak like in Mozambique, we have about 16 nations or so, right? Which are called tribes by the colonial powers. And I don't like that term, it's a colonial word. So we have actual nations there, right? And, and South Africa too. So another various parts of Africa, and we speak different national languages. So we don't necessarily, I mean, the fact that I'm Shangan and Ronga doesn't mean that speaking Zulu makes me lose my identity as Shangan and Ronga or that part of my identity as Shangan and Ronga, right? But, you know, I can, I can speak Zulu, I can learn instruments from, you know, uh, folk in West Africa and play those instruments and I can learn, you know, the guitar from elsewhere and use that for humanity's sake. It is not for the sake of a specific group. So this whole idea of dividing and, and, and having, you know, this, you know, so if we're not a part of the creation of stuff, 
it becomes very problematic. So if we can't name things, it becomes also an issue. So in AI being, it's really new and, and we all trying to find a way around this. And this is the time when we can all be thinking, what is the intelligence in it, right? That goes into it. So we, we're not necessarily thinking in terms of, oh, who develops the robot, who develops the phone, who develops that, but it's what's the intelligence that goes into that. And that intelligence carries a cosmology, carries all sorts of things and cultures and so on. And this is how we should be thinking about AI if we want to serve humanity. And I believe there are things yet to be revealed about what these technologies can do. And one of the people that's at the vanguard of discovery is our next speaker. And leading on for this topic of language, which is central, is Dr. Vukosi Marivate. He's the ABSU Chair of Data Science at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. Vukosi comes to us through our network, which extended through reaching and looking to make a very diverse and inclusive conversation. So as we reached out to him, he responded vigorously and said, okay, what's happening? And he's been a vigorous part of this community. So I'm gonna hand over to you, Vukosi, to really give us this interior of the research that you've been doing with Makahani and Translation. Greetings, everyone, and hello yeah, from South Africa. I'm Vukas Marivati, and I'm the APSA uh, UP Chair of Data Science and in the Computer Science Department at the University of Pretoria. I lead, I lead a research group called Data Science for Social Impact. And uh, today, really, I want to talk through a journey of what brought us to Masakani, uh, which is a project that I'm one of the chief investigators on there. And just for trivia, uh, I myself also um, am Tsonga, uh, so I am connected in some ways to Jose uh, in, in, uh, in Mozambique. Uh, as, as per such, uh, my father is Tsonga and my family in terms of my paternal side uh, on that part. Normally when I give these talks, it's let's actually set up some of the basics so that we can actually understand each other. We talk about things, but we don't really understand uh, some of the kind of foundations that allow us to really engage. So one of the things with emerging technologies is that text and language is a very rich interface to share information and also interact with machines. But there are some questions that we have to ask ourselves as we do this is like, you know, how do machines process language information? And also then why is local language important, right? You know, not just for the sake of it. To do this first, we need to understand kind of artificial intelligence, machine learning and natural language processing. So artificial intelligence uh, is at its basics defined as you have a machine, it's uh, as a concept, it lives in an environment, it can perceive things in the environment, it can perform actions, and then it can reach a goal. So if we think about a search engine such as Google or Bing as an AI, it's a machine, it lives in an environment, it lives on the internet, it can perceive it, it can read web pages as it's crawling it, it can perform actions. So when you type in a query, what it does is that it searches through its databases and the goal is to return a result that is actually connected uh, to the query that you put in. Uh, sometimes we tend to think about this from a, a robot or robotics where you have a machine being the robot, it lives in, a, in, in, in an environment, let's say it's in your house, it's a vacuum cleaning robot, it can perform actions, it can move around, and then from moving around, it, it then uh, like, you know, can clean, and the goal is to keep your house clean. Machine learning is a subset of AI where we now want to say, hey, how then, like, you know, to do these intelligent actions, how can we then learn in, 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 in patterns then uh, from data? If you think about spam, 
what you do is that you always click if you see spam in your email and you give it a label to say, oh, this email is actually spam. And if you give that the machine enough data, what it does is that it can learn patterns that emails like this are okay, they're ham, and emails like this are likely going to be spam. Now, natural language processing then is how then do we deal with textual data, right, um, on, on that part? How do we process it? And this can have different tasks, whether it can be translation, can be things like spam detection, can be chatbots where you're talking to, um, to these machines online. But then you, we hit this wall, right, that if we look at the internet as it is, we've gotten used to interacting with, with um, the internet in English. And is it then this equalizing force that we think it is? So the reasons though that we don't have a lot of these machines or these language tools, whether it's translation or talking to your virtual assistants um, or Google Assistant in, other, on, in your local languages is this lack of sufficient language resources. So if I look at South Africa, for example, um, we have like, you know, of our top newspapers, most of them are in English. We have 11 official languages, English and Afrikaans, uh, uh, two of them. And then there's the other one, as I said, I'm, um, I speak Shitsonga and I also speak Setswana um, in, in a way. But if you look at the top 10 newspapers in the country by circulation, you'll see most of them are in English. There's some in Isizulu and then it tapers off. Right. So there's then inequality in data availability. So an example that we can actually then look at uh, kind of data availability is let's look at Wikipedia. Again, we think of Wikipedia as this equalizing force that's open to everybody. But then if you then started thinking how many Wikipedia articles are written in a specific language, English is over 6 million articles right now. And in South Africa, that's only 10% people who speak English is the first language. Afrikaans has about 90,000, and it's only 13% of people who speak that language. If you go down to Isizulu, it only has 1,400 articles actually written in Isizulu, but that's 23% of the country actually speaks, in, like, you know, or talks first language, Isizulu. So this is very interesting that now that data is not available, right? And it's also now rare to find these annotated data sets. Uh, uh, for these different tasks publicly. So how then can we actually think about ways to innovate, to do data collection or to build up things like uh, doing translation for these other languages, right? And this then brings us like, you know, to really thinking about why it's so important for indigenous language. If we don't really do this is, uh, we don't think about how the internet, how machines, how AI develops with our local languages is that we then are going to then miss things that we could be capturing. So languages capture things like culture. They capture indigenous knowledge. And if we are really getting to the point now where if a language is not understood by a machine, a couple of years from now, it's almost like it's going to be that that language never existed. And with it then goes those indigenous knowledge. There goes those cultures that then kind of disappear because we're moving into this uh, monolingualism. How did we get here? We do have inequality of language. I, I did show the kind of how we then have low resource languages. We also have colonial legacies that I think also touching on what Jose um, had been uh, speaking, Jose had been talking about. In a lot of African countries, the only kind of major reasons that languages were actually in some way gotten to be developed was in the service of colonialism where you're going back to, oh, <coughs> let's actually uh, do uh, some translation or learn a specific local language so that we can actually interact with the locals, but then not really to benefit them, but then for us to understand on there. And there's also missionaries coming to Africa and also 
doing the translations to translate the Bible and then spread more religion than again developing and working with the local populations, right? And when then, like, you know, we're moving to this more move of monolingualism online, there's lack of data. And then there's the whole question of who actually develops these systems. And it's very important when we think about the data because for any machine learning kind of system, you need to give it training data so that you can build a model. And then this model is the thing that you use. So even if you're using things like Google Translate or Amazon Translate, they have been given loads of initial data and then you push it through into, a, into an algorithm, it pops out a model, and then you can use that service. But there is that question, where is this data, right? And to do that, we need to then have a framework to kind of look at this. And one is that there are, like, you know, Africa in, in, in some, has some of the most, uh, the biggest linguistic diversity in terms of languages, but there's low availability of data when it comes to those languages. It's very hard to discover sometimes to find language resources to, in order to use to build these AI systems. Also, there's challenges of focus. So if most of kind of the tech world, the academic world is looking at English, as the, the things that they're developing for, it's very hard then if you're a young researcher then to think, oh, I should actually be focusing on more local languages. And there's also very few benchmarks or ways to reproduce uh, these benchmarks. And this is where Masakani comes in and it builds also on this concept of Ubuntu that you know, a person is a person because of others. Masakani uh, means uh, let's actually build each other in Isizulu. And it's a research effort to, which started initially with uh, doing machine translation, so going from one language to another across the African continent. This project is open source, so everything that's done through the project actually is open. People collect data and they make it all available openly. People build these machine learning or AI models and they also make them available. It's continent-wide, it's distributed and it's online. So we kind of break the physical borders, people work together on specific projects and they work on lots of different languages to actually figure out how to get data. And data in this case is these things called par uh, parallel corpora, where you have two documents parallel to each other that are in two languages, but they, you, they're actually synced. So you, one sentence actually connects to the other one. And then this is what you would feed in to a neural machine translation system. The people who are on, on kind of at the moment at, on this project, there's a big contingent from South, Southern Africa across the whole African continent. You have people who are like, you know, all the way from secondary school up to PhD in terms of who is there in terms of the highest uh, level of education and their occupation. You have linguists, software engineers, people are current data scientists, researchers, and even current students that are on there because the project is in this way where you can go in, see how people are building these things and then be able to easily join. The reach at the moment is, is, is massive. We've had over 144 participants in, the, in this project over from 17 African countries. And they come, as I said, from this diverse background. And it's very important for that. Uh, if these systems that are being built for Africans by Africans, they also then are going to bring in that care to understand what like, you know, specific challenges actually mean and how to get over them. We've had people spending weekends with people in the community who are then writing down folk tales in their language or, or translating them and then making these available. As again, I said, you're capturing these indigenous knowledge, you're capturing these concepts of culture that then you know, we build into these AI kind of uh, systems. And as of February, 2020, we now had over 35 translation results 
um, for over 29 different African languages, right? And then these are like, you know, loads of contributors who are making this available online on these repositories. So you can go to the masakani.io website to go see what's actually going on, on um, in the project. And now there's a second part of the project. As I said, the initial uh, focus was on machine translation. So if being able to translate from one language to another and having a system that's available, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, you'll be able to go test out and then putting loads of different African languages and then be able to translate from one language to another to see this. This is something that you don't even have currently uh, on the major platforms like Google or Microsoft. But then there's also a critical engagement in the scholarship and the reach uh, that is out there. If we look at it this way is that we can now see how people are publishing and they're starting to now write their experiences and of their work and where now we had multiple submissions to one of the workshops at like one of the eminent AI conferences in the world, which is ICLR. Uh, 2020, and you can see how many papers were there from the Masakane community, right? It's, it's not one person, it's not one lab in one country, but it's all these distributed people who are continuing to now play an active role. So how do we move forward? We need to get people to understand, and I, that's one of the reasons I, I really joined onto this uh, project, for people to understand what actually it means to, to, to have an active AI community on the African continent that's building tools uh, that is that I like you know directed to Africans. We need to collect, collate, and annotate data, and you can always um, reach out to the Masakane uh, community and see ways that you you can also donate data that you might have. And we also need to expand practice and skill um, in the community. So people in the Masakane project they work together, they build skill together. We also have the deep learning in Dava, which is the largest grassroots machine learning or AI. Uh, program in the world that was actually built on the African continent. And these kind of uh, different systems uh, like Data Science Africa, Data Science Nigeria, they're all working together and interfacing each other, uh, with each other to build this community. Great. Fantastic. It's so fascinating. And the layer, the ways that this can ripple out into the diaspora are also enormous, since we have also created new languages in the Caribbean and in South America, these hybrids, which people would like to call pidgin, but in fact, they do have their own grammatical uh, indexical structures that can denote them as, as languages. But I'm going to speak to the possibility, the dream of the farmer in Rwanda, or the Farmers Association in Rwanda, and the Farmers Association in Kenya, in this critical moment where there is need for direct innovation and sharing of information that can ultimately save lives. How do you see this technology being used in such critical situations, given the fact that we are about advancing this space for those that that have the need at the critical moment. How do we get this information and the tool to the point where it can translate to two different communities working remotely without a middle person that is translating into a European language? What does that look like? Sure, um, thanks actually for bringing that up and we didn't rehearse this one. So uh, in any way, uh, because if you look at uh, Kirwanda, um, as a language, and then also look at Kiswahili. There's been now a move to, uh, I primarily work in text, so that's why I gave these examples that are textual based, but then you can also think about speech. Uh, there's a big project that's been going on for Mozilla uh, on the African continent also to record people speaking in, in Kirwanda 
and then also in Kiswahili, and then making these data available for machine learning and AI researchers to actually work on and then build on that you can actually do these translations. I have, I have a, um, a student who's working on another language uh, specifically to do um, live translation where you go from speech to text and then translate it and live as you're watching a video. And it's very important, I guess, uh, like again, to, to, to highlight this because once these tools become available and these resources become available, we do open up these resources that we say are coming from the internet for more people to be able to engage with. They can then engage with information, their data, their like, you know, knowledge in a specific area. If you're thinking about the mountains of Rwanda or the hills of Rwanda and saying, here, I'm a farmer, I work on this, and we can actually share information and the systems can actually enhance kind of our, our understanding. Again, we take it very much for granted that we can interact with news systems uh, online and they automatically annotate the news that we're reading and then we can look at a topic and go under there. And we can now get to a point where we can do the same thing with local languages. So we are still just at the beginning and it's, it's really something interesting to see where it's gonna go over the next two or three years with all the collaborators. And I'm just going to ask one more technical question. What is the challenge around GPUs that you're facing in Africa that we don't experience in the West? Could you just elaborate on that for us? Um, yeah, so this is a more this is a technical requir requirement that if you're training systems today, is you need graphical processing units. So these things that in the past we used to like you know connect them to games and getting uh, good visuals and all those things, but then to train very big deep learning models, you need GPU access. And there are ways that we're trying to look at actually reducing this. So uh, sure, I might have the resources to build servers in, in my, for my research group at my university, but other people in different parts, even of South Africa or the African continent, there's very prohibitively expensive because uh, you could be looking at even entry level uh, good ones for natural language processing being tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but the arrival, I think, of cloud-based systems where we have a lot of support from people like Google Research who are then giving us access to cloud infrastructure that we can then use, but then that requires that you have good internet. You can, like, you know, as you say, now it just imagine you have to deal with 20 to 30 gigs of speech data. On there, now the connectivity becomes a, the, the problem. But then through Masakani, what we then notice is that people then look for innovative ways to still work through this and find ways to share data, share their resources. I make available uh, our cloud infrastructure to other people on the African continent who are working in AI who just need access to somebody like me who's a faculty member. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lukosi. It seems to me like there's a, an opportunity there for an African or African-American billionaire to step in rather than it being something that is simply owned or anticipated that Google will step in and become the law as you guys are all doing this really deep work and facilitating in ways that quite frankly, people are not interested in right now because it isn't monetizable in this moment. So let's hope that we can find our way to those kinds of uh, deep pockets that really are coming from the same perspective. Moving into more technical detail, our third speaker is Dr. Jackie Berry, who is a cognitive scientist. And she came on board with this project when she was a Fulbright scholar at the university in Egypt, um, which is when she first came on board with the 
great zeal that she will share with us today. So thank you, Jackie, over to you. Thank you so very much, Ama. I'm a cognitive scientist and cognitive psychology deals with the area of memory, it deals with the area of perception, it, it deals with the area of attention, and it deals with the area of language. And language is really what ties all of this together because it's what informs our human experience. The reality is, as Jose said in his talk, AI, as much as it is artificial and as much as it is extremely capable and fast and, and has high capacity, it is still filtered through human concepts. And human concepts are filtered through the human experience, which is filtered through language, because language is oftentimes how we categorize things and how we form ideas in our mind, and it's how we approach things. So we can't really look at AI without looking at the human experience, and we can't really look at the human experience without looking at language. And language is key because some scholars even argue that that's actually what is part of what makes us human beings. Every creature on earth is given one gift that will help them survive. Uh, cheetahs, for example, they can run really fast. Well, human beings, we're not particularly big and we're not particularly fast, but we have these massive brains that can help us solve problems and work together and, and, and teach our young. But the key to that is language because that's what allows us to communicate and collaborate and pass down information and work together and not just concrete arenas, but in abstract arenas as well. So let's talk about bilingualism because the key to AI and understanding human concepts is language. And a lot of people, this is now becoming the norm more than anything. So as Vukosi was saying, he speaks multiple languages because that's, that's how he was raised as a youth in South Africa. That's not necessarily the case where I live. I, li I live in the United States, but it's becoming more so the case. So bilingualism is extremely prevalent in every country. Um, in, in Europe, where people are very close together, they are encouraged to speak a lot of other languages. In the USA, uh, at least 20% of people report speaking some language other than English at home. And Africa has four major languages and hundreds of minor languages. And Arabic is the second most common language with 260 million people speaking it. And I'll get into the specifics of Arabic later on. You'll see why I talk about that. But the reality is doctors used to advise people to not teach their children if they could all help it more than one language. Because when a child is learning two lexicons versus one, they can mix the two, they can confuse the two and building up the repository of vocabulary for two sets of words, for two separate stores of information can take more time. So the child will actually look as though they are developmentally behind relative to their monolingual peers. That's not necessarily the case because on the other side of that is the ability to have different concepts in different languages. There are words in some languages that don't appear in other languages. And there are benefits to being bilingual, such as your brain forms multiple routes to get to different concepts, which actually protects you later on in life against problems such as dementia. So during normal conversation, people who are multilingual will often alternate between two or more languages that are understood by participants in the conversation. And this is what we refer to as code switching. So code switching 
a lot of people who, who are bilingual do this. They will speak in one language. And I heard this one when I was in Egypt, they would just have a conversation. And then when it got to a point where they couldn't express what they were trying to express in that language, they would switch to the other language and they would say a few words and maybe they would stay in that language for the rest of the sentence or the paragraph or even the rest of the conversation. And maybe they would switch back. But the point is, it's something that people do regularly and researchers and linguists are arguing that until we take the process of code switching seriously, we can't really understand what's going on in the bilingual mind. So there are certain advantages, as I said before, one of these is executive function. So if you are speaking in one language, you have to inhibit the other language. The brain is going to, because it's, it takes a lot to generate a thought, translate that into actions, send that to the motor part of the brain, and then I'm simplifying the process, but then turn that into output, output called speech and then form the correct mouth movements and control your breath and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's one or the other. So your brain is stopping one language from being activated while it is using the other language. Another advantage to being bilingual is attention. So if we look at processes such as visual search um, and various other aspects of attention that we study in cognitive psychology, bilingual people can tune out irrelevant information much better than monolingual people. There's also something called task switching, which is costly. And I'll get into the idea of switching later on uh, in my talk when I talk about switching between devices and interfaces, but just switching between basic tasks. And we all think we're multitasking and switching all the time, and we are, but you're not doing multiple tasks at a time. You're switching between the two very, very rapidly, and that's a direct cost. So when I switch from one task to another, there's a startup, there's a slowdown, meaning that it is the momentum is lost from the previous task and it takes me time to get into the groove of doing the next task. So I do the next task immediately after a switch, a little bit slower than the previous task. But more importantly, there's also a global cost. And the global cost is that there's kind of like an overhead in managing multiple tasks. So if you just have one task that you're worried about, you can do that task really, really well, and you can just pound away at it as quickly as you can. But when you have two tasks, you're juggling. And the overhead of having these two separate task sets that may or may not have different response sets and different stimuli, I don't wanna to get too technical here, but the point is even repeating a task when you have two takes longer than just having one task to worry about. So bilingual people tend to be extremely flexible. I'm using the term bilingual pretty copiously, but the reality is anyone who speaks multiple languages, like my colleague Vukosi, some people speak three, four, five, and six languages, and that is wonderful for them. Uh, whether you speak multiple languages and are a polyglot or whether you are bilingual, the reality is your mental flexibility is much better than your monolingual counterparts. There are some disadvantages in terms of speech production. It takes a little bit of that startup and that's that startup, right? Which language am I speaking in? Which code am I using? And there's a brief dip in the consistency of the conversation while people switch from one code to the other. Another disadvantage is thinking about one's own cognitive performance. That's called metacognitive processing, as well as trying to discern speech if you are in a noisy environment. So people who are speaking just one language, they have a lot of practice. 
at understanding and a lot of speech comprehension is categorical perception. We won't get into the details of that right now, but you get really good at understanding the phoneme specific to your language when you practice just one language. So if you have an imperfect environment, let's say there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of noise, you can better discern the speech in that environment than someone who's bilingual and is trying to discern speech from, let's say, another language. Production of speech can be slower and more prone to errors. And I would just like to add to that with the masks that we are using with this COVID-19, I've noticed that definitely is a problem when people are trying to communicate. People are used to using the cues of looking at people's lips. And also the mask kinds of, kind of you know, filters out some of the more nuanced sounds. So that's another example, wearing a mask as we are required to today in a lot of places here in, in the United States, wearing a mask is an example of an imperfect listening environment. Code switching and dysglossia. Dysglossia is when you have two or more varieties of a language in a particular speaking environment or in a community. So code switching is going back and forth. And when you have languages that let's say you use for more than one purpose, for example, that would be dysglossia. In Arabic, most Arabic countries use modern standard Arabic, which is also referred to as literary Arabic for all formal communications, for all media, and for anything where they need to communicate cross country or cross dialect. But within their own countries, they actually tend to have, when I say they, I mean Arabic speaking countries for whom that's the dominant language, their own spoken Arabic, colloquial Arabic. So in Egypt, for example, they speak Amea, that's the colloquial spoken form of Arabic. Uh, there's a different form spoken in Morocco, there's a different form spoken in Lebanon and so on and so forth. So there's lots of different versions of spoken Arabic depending on the location where you are. However, all of these countries are unified in terms of the literary Arabic that they use for formal communications. So there's a separate verbal dialect and a separate written communication dialect. So the interesting thing about code switching is you can't necessarily witness all of the effects of what is happening when someone's code switching in a dysglossic situation. So if someone's searching for a word or let's say someone has to get triggered into the correct context for what language they should be using. For example, a lot of my colleagues use English primarily for science and for academic type conversations. And so the trigger context for them there is, okay, I'm speaking about science, which is primarily done in English. And so that automatically triggers them that they should be using English. They might have a different trigger for using their native language that they speak. But the reality is things are happening under the surface that we can't see when people are code switching in multiple language environments. So let's talk about this glossy and technology. As I said before, Amea is the language that Egyptian Arabic speakers use for colloquial verbal communication. But interestingly, when a lot of technology was developed and started coming to the fore in the 1990s, uh, it was developed in an English only environment. It was developed in such a way that it did not support Arabic script. So what needed to happen was Arabic script needed to be transliterated so that you could use English alphanumeric characters to represent Arabic script so that you could pronounce the words 
and understand how to pronounce them visually by looking at them. Spoken code switching and Egyptian person who is, let's say, on a campus where both Arabic and English are spoken, they might code switch between the two verbally, between Amaya and between English. But then when they code switch in a written dysglossic situation, they're writing English, they're writing modern standard Arabic, and they're writing something called Arabizi. Arabizi is also what the young people call Franco. It's also called Romanized. Arabizi stands for Arabic and Inglesi, and when you mash those two together, you get this uh, way to communicate, which again was originally developed because there was a lack of support for Arabic script using mobile technology. So this is a meta issue. So not only is there code switching between English and Arabic, but there's also this written code that was developed to work around technology not supporting Arabic script. And so this is an example of just echoing what my colleague Vukosi said uh, in terms of teaching someone a language during the colonial process. It was originally in service of communicating with people who were local. In this situation, and I think it's kind of brilliant actually, this is actually in service of communicating with one another and being able to work around the fact that you don't have your native language supported and the beauty of it is it's still continuing. So the keyboard that I use today, the mobile phone that I use today, they all have Arabic script. I used it when I was in Egypt. But at the end of the day, the young people and most of my college students that I dealt with would use this format to communicate in all of their text messaging. So I think it's brilliant. So cognitive code switching is a meta issue that informs how any technology used for AI all the way from the interfaces to the data sets are interpreted and used. I also study TETLAG, that's what I was in Egypt to study, which is the brief performance dipped, dipped by, caused by switching between two well-learned interfaces to complete the same or similar tasks. So just to give you a bit of background on that, TETLAG is a slowdown. So we talk about task switching, there is a brief local cost when you start up a new task after switching over from an old task. We're talking a few hundred milliseconds, but of course this adds up over time. Tetlag is you're actually doing the same task. You're not switching tasks, but you are switching the mode in which you're doing that task. So for example, if I were to try to dial a telephone number on my cell phone, the keypad would be differently laid out than if I were to try to withdraw money from an ATM machine. Um, or if I were to try to use a calculator, for example. This all also affects things like piloting when controls are located in different directions and you are temporarily flummoxed uh, when you're trying to switch which one you're dealing with. Surgeons who perform laparoscopic surgery have to often use the mirror image of the camera that is inside the patient's body. So they're actually performing, performing the surgery upside down. And according to some, re some research, all of the devices that we have, as many as 3.2 per person, we switch as much as 20 times per hour. That's just an incredible amount of switching. And it doesn't even include all of the switching that we do between applications and programs. I could pick up my phone and I might be on my phone for one hour, but I could switch between WhatsApp. I could switch between Facebook. I could switch between the texting app. I could switch between Gmail and so on and so forth. So we're constantly switching between ways of completing the same tasks, such as writing an email. And then of course there is QWERTY versus Dvorak keyboards. Some people are very wedded to the keyboard that they like. 
the one that's their preference and trying to switch back to a different version of a keyboard. Again, this is the same task. They're still typing, but trying to switch the, to the different interface of the other keyboard can cause a problem. So this is all tet lag. So tet lag is basically the physical embodiment of code switching where there's a verbal kind of startup cost when you're trying to produce language as a bilingual person and you might be a little bit slower i apologize i don't have actual numbers on that but just might be a little bit slower at producing speeches the same thing with tet lag when you're interacting with a different interface you're going to be a little bit slower when you're switching to that next interface so it's the physical physical embodiment of code switching so just to wrap up my part of this conversation the purpose of of this part of the talk is really trying to get into how language ties everything together not only does language govern how we interact with one another and govern how we interact with our environments because we use it to collaborate um, to live in this world and to do things like build houses and build cars but it also acts as a mediator for how we interact with technology so language is the framework for how we do everything from type text messages to determine how we label every interaction that we have one of the things that we can do is we can computationally model interface switching. And this is such a very new topic. 10 years ago, it didn't matter because everyone didn't have a device that they were switching between writing emails on, sending text messages on, and calling home and so on and so forth. So with computational modeling, we can actually look at some of that. So there's evidence for retroactive interference and for facilitation. We also need to account for Disglossic speech. So as I said, I've overheard so many conversations where people would be speaking one language and because they didn't have the proper concept in their native language or in some other language, they had to switch to the other language. They had to code switch mid conversation. Speech recognition should account for that because people are constantly do it, doing it, particularly in professional environments. A computational modeling of how bilingualism affects interacting with technology. So if you have two separate frameworks for how you are conceptualizing the world, because again, language is how we're conceptualizing the world. This is what gives us the categories. This is what, this is what informs our interactions. Then how does that affect how you are interacting with the technology in front of you? And also a discovery of trigger context. So as I've said before, when I interact with my colleagues in a scientific and academic context, they usually are already primed, so to speak, to be speaking English because that's the language that they use primarily. What context is going to trigger them to switch back to their native language? So that is um, the end of my portion and I want to thank everyone so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you Jackie, just so fascinating. Every time we take a deep dive I'm just uh, calculating more and understanding more. And um, the last time we spoke we actually did enter into a new space when I talked about the fact that using these interfaces, these different interfaces, we're actually using our bodies and we're having to use our bodies in new and different ways. And this makes me think about the point in time where we will not have physical devices, where technology will be embedded into the environment in a whole different set of ways or the possibility of that. So the idea of learning and learning with embodied cognition, I would think would be an interesting area to further your research. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think it would be an interesting area and you're right. We're gonna to get to a point particularly, I think with wearable technology, 
um, where it's just the bodies interacting with the technology. Uh, but one thing that I think that's important is language informs so much how we structure the technology that we have to make sure that we have fair and uncolonialized ways of informing the AI because the AI is going to inform us. And so we can't lose any of the languages that we have. I also want to say that when you look at some things like African dance and you look at different movement patterns, and I, and I, when I, you're a dancer, Amma, so you can appreciate this. When I look at some of the traditional dances from cultures all over the world and some of the similarities that they have with one another and some of the differences, I think that's another way to translate culture into an artificial intelligence context. Absolutely. I think there's so much to be extended there and ways for us to be thinking about the future actually of the languages that are being generated to what we're doing now, power the devices. but movement encoding working with language there's a part of the brain called the Broca's area of the brain that's both responsible for creative movement and language and inter interacting through a articulate body and what does that articulate body look like and this is a space that again using other modalities that we can imagine that the technology can be in a completely other space than it currently is now. Yeah, I was going to say with Broca's area, um, that is actually a source for one form of aphasia that you find when, when people have difficulty speaking. And what I would actually be interested in finding out, maybe you would know more about this, Ama, is whether or not there's a connection between the ability to express oneself via movement and any type of impairment in Broca's area. Yeah, that would be absolutely fascinating research. And ultimately, again, different, different cultures have different ways of moving and inform, being informed by that. What's the impairment? How does that impact people from different cultures in terms of communication skills? So thank you. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to the Future Positive Podcast. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new episode. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with your friends and fellow optimists. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback is important. Speaking of AI, XPRIZE and Cognizant have partnered to launch the Pandemic Response Challenge, a challenge focused on developing AI and data-driven systems to predict COVID-19 infection rates and prescribe intervention plans that regional governments, communities, and organizations can implement to minimize harm when reopening their cities and restarting their economies. You can learn more at xprize.org slash pandemic response. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.